You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I'd ask you to turn in a Bible, if you have one with you, to to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't, the text is in your order of worship. Um, We had a couple of Bibles on the back table. We need to refill those uh, because someone took us up on our offer, which is great, fantastic. Uh, We'll get some more out there if if you don't own one. Don't worry, we'll get one in your hands. Let me remind us what we're doing. We are literally in the middle of a year-long series um, through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in the Old Testament. That's... um, about halfway through your Bibles, the book of Psalms, keep going to the right, you'll pass Proverbs, and then you'll get to Ecclesiastes, okay? We're, we're in the middle of this year-long series, and we're doing this because of a conviction that all of us, Christian or not, uh, everyone in this room, everyone on this planet, is looking for something. We may call it different things, but in the end, we are all looking for something to hold the weight of our hopes, to hold the weight of, of, of what we hope to get out of life, what we hope we need. And this book speaks to that. Some of us, that may be striking. The Bible actually speaks to something we care about. It does. Um, this book speaks to this particular thing, and it does so uh, from a rather secular perspective. It doesn't give you, uh, you know, churchy talk. It gives you straight talk from the mind of someone who's trying to find hope apart from God. Okay? And ironically, though, like I said before, this week we look at what it would mean to look for our meaning, to look for, um, our ho- to, to look for religion, to be able to hold the weight of our hopes, Can our spirituality hold it up? Can our religious fervor, our church involvement, or just, you know, because some of us don't self-define as religious, but we self-define as spiritual, right? Can that that provide us what we're looking for? That is the question that we come with today, and as all questions here in this church, we're going to bring it to the the Bible to see what it says. So um, our habit here in this church is we stand in honor of God's Word, so why don't we do that now as I read. I'm going to be reading uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Friends, this is God's word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is God's word. It's given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we are in this room from a bunch of different places. But we're in this place. And that is not an accident. We are here because you called us here. And so we, we ask that no matter where we are this morning, that you would meet us there. You would draw us into your story. 
And that, Lord, um, that you would let Christ and his cross come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the back because, Lord, he is the hope of the world. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. All right. Bold statement alert. Here it comes. Everyone in the world is religious. Everyone is religious. Now, some of you are nodding right now, right? We'll see if that continues. Um, others of you are offended because you don't consider yourself religious at all. Right? For you, uh, the word religious is attached to organized religion, which you don't self-identify with. You're like, that. I don't like that. Um, you know... You consider yourself spiritual, and spiritual is a great term because no one can actually define what that means, um, and it, but it sounds also really hip and wise, right? So we love the term spiritual as opposed to religious. But others of us don't think we're religious. We certainly don't think we're spiritual. We think religion and its um, absentee stepchild, spirituality, is all bunk, right? It's all bunk. And, and you may be here simply to satisfy a friend, right? They've been pestering you to get here, and you're like, okay, okay, I'll come here. That's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll sit here, but see, it's not for me. Or you're specifically here to prove true what you've always suspected about the church, which normally is something like they're, in, they're out for my money and they want to control me. Um, here, here's why I say that everyone is religious, though, okay? No matter where you are on that spectrum. The scriptures, the Bible, tells us that we were made to worship. Now, that's a really churchy word, right? Worship. For some of us, that means singing. Others of us, we don't really know what that means. What it really means is to ascribe ultimate worth to something, right? To worship something is to ascribe ultimate worth to something and to serve it because it is ultimately worthy. Now, Christians believe, obviously, that we were made to worship God, but all of us worship something, whether it's money or power um, or uh, knowledge or autonomy and freedom, whatever it is, we all, we all ascribe these things ultimate worth. We try to get them to work for us, to give us something, and we hope that they will solve the problem we know we have. But here's the thing. No matter what our worship is, no matter what our religious service is, the scriptures tell us that our religion can't give us what we hope. Even if that religion is in the service to the God of the Bible. Now, hopefully this is going to become clear as we move on. There, there, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at this, this text, this passage this morning in three ways. Okay? We're going to look at the character of religion, the inadequacies of religion, and then finally the alternative to religion. Okay? The character, the inadequacies of it, and then an alternative. First, I want to look at the character. Let's look at a form of holiness. Look down at verses 1 to 2 if you still have your text out in front of you. He begins this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, this sets the stage for his argument. This is what he's talking about. It's this context Right? And, and anytime you read the Bible, you want to look for the context of what he's saying. Because we have a habit of taking little verses, we pull them out, we, we rub them like rabbit's feet to, give us, to give, make us feel good about ourselves. We need, to under, we need to place this back in its context. And the context of this has to do with this idea of going to the house of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the house of God is the temple. There's only one of them. It's in, it's in the city of Jerusalem, and it is, it is the place of worship for the entire nation. And in the theology of the Old Testament, the way they understand God, it is also the place where heaven and earth meet, right? That, if you want to go have an experience of God, you've got to go to the temple. Um, and, and that's because, and some of you who are, who, uh, are more fluent with the Bible that, that um, get into this stuff, 
that is why, that is why um, the temple has all this imagery. There's, there's statues and all this stuff, angels everywhere. The, the, candle, the, the candlesticks are made to look like tree branches because it's, it's supposed to be Eden. Right? It's Eden being rebuilt and being restored. That's God restoring things because that's where he would walk in the cool of the day. All right? Now, back to this. This helps us to see that what we're talking about here is the context of religious worship. And specifically, temple worship, which means it's orthodox. It means that this is the right kind of worship. That's what we're talking about here. And in, in if you're a first century Jew, or if you're, if you're a, an original reader of this, which would have been long before the first century, this would have, what he's talking about is worship as it's supposed to be done as a Jew. In other words, you, you see the world in two, in two uh, categories. And we heard those, some of those categories this morning in our, in our um, New Testament reading, that there's the, there, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are Jews and there's everybody else. There are Jews and Gentiles. Right? And if, and if you're a Jew, like, then God has spoken to you, you've got all the good stuff, and you're a Gentile, then, you know, you're kind of wandering around in darkness. So he's not talking specifically about just, just kind of pagan worship. He's not talking about, well, the them, you know, on the us-them spectrum. He's talking about us. Okay? He's talking about the context of religious worship, and he follows that up with this. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know that they are doing evil. Now, let me give you a picture of what is happening here. The writer of this book, who calls himself the teacher or the preacher or something like that, depending on your translation, he is, he is envisioning a scene in which someone is coming to the temple to worship, right? Like they're supposed to. They're, and their whole point is co- in coming is to go through motions, to get their religion done, this is why he mentions listening as opposed to offering the sacrifice of fools. Remember, in the Old Testament, and you may not know this, but in the Old Testament, um, the, the kind of the, the major chunk of the Bible, as you're reading it, um, in the Old Testament, animal sacrifice was part of worship. He's not saying that sacrifice is foolish. When he says the sacrifice is foolish, he's not saying sacrifice is foolish. He's contrasting someone who comes to listen to God, presumably from his word. In other words, someone who's in a form of relationship with him, listening to him, and someone who, who just simply does religious stuff. They aren't bringing their entire person before God. They're simply, simply seeking to offer him something. I'm going to give him something of mine, and I hope he'll be okay with that. Okay? Our teacher calls that the sacrifice of fools. And this gets to the point of him saying that they don't know that they are doing evil. Now, let me try and explain this as best I can. Many of us have the notion that, that, the, that if there is a God, um, he's, he's a rather... Uh, he's kind of a rather insecure and uninvolved chap, right? I mean, like, he's way off in the distance. He's way up there. And he kind of, what he really wants is for us to do certain things to keep rules, maybe believe a couple of things... And tell him that he's good. Like, we look at him like we think about, like, Tinkerbell, right? That if we don't say, I do believe in fairies enough times and clap, that he's going to die, okay? Uh, but what, what we think, it, ultimately, is that God wants obedience, or at least some kind of effort, and then we're going to be okay. And if, if we give that obedience, or we give some kind of effort, we give like a, well, I really tried, I had good intentions, then God will do good things for us, Okay? So when our teacher says that they don't understand that when they offer these empty sacrifices they are doing evil, what he means is that empty religion misses the point. Not only does it miss the point, he calls it evil, which means it is offensive to God. 
It's offensive to God. Think about that for a minute. Religion can be offensive to God. And not, not just any religion. Remember, the context, he's talking to Jews about Jewish religion. In other words, like, they believed God has revealed himself, and this is how he says he wants to be worshipped, and they're doing it. And he says, There's, you can do it all the right ways and still be offensive to God. In other words, not all religious observance is created equal, okay? I know that's hard for us in our democratized society, but it's not. But the danger of all of this, especially in the context that he is speaking, the danger of all of it is, to most of us, it all looks pretty good. It looks really nice, right? People can be really good people. They can be really apparently devout. They can be upstanding and moral and still be serving not God, not loving not God, but religion. Now, some of us in here this morning are in this camp, right? Some of us who are members of this church are in this camp. We have probably spent our whole lives looking pretty good. We have good habits, and we know how to keep our bad ones secret, right? We cover those up. And we have a lot of facts about God. We probably have some Bible memorized. We can express the gospel. We may have even led someone to faith in Christ before. But we are desperate to keep up an image But in reality, we are offering the sacrifice of fools. On the outside, we look nice, but inside, we are angry, we are arrogant, and we are terrified. Now, a lot of that is because of a confusion of identity. Look down at verses 2 to 3. He says this. Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. God's in heaven, you're on earth. Now, stop there. If I just described you, and you're like, oh, dude been reading my email. Like, uh, if I just described you, let me, let me offer you something. You want to know why you're angry, why you're consistently disappointed, and why you're terrified when it comes to God? We get this way when we have forgotten who is who. Okay? Here's what I mean. The teacher here has this statement, right? God's in heaven. You're on earth. I mean, he says, let your words be few. Um, and this totally speaks to this. You see, the very basis of what we would call religion, the very basis of religious service, the kind of religion that he's talking about here, is a category error. We tend to think it works like this. We do things for God. He does things for us. We, we have this business arrangement. Um, the, the, that is the best idea of religion. It's kind of a, a business arrangement. And that is why many of us are angry when we think we've been doing what we're supposed to. Right? I've been doing the right things but we haven't gotten what we think we deserve. And we're angry because that means to us, he's going back on his deal. He made me a deal. And the deal was, I serve you, or or his deal is like, look, you serve me and I'll give you what what you most want, what is the most meaningful thing in your heart that I'll give you. All you got to do is serve me, right? Now, many of us have confused this with actual Christianity, and we are surprised when life doesn't turn out the way that we should. And then we start pointing the finger at God. Don't we? You didn't come through for me. Why have I been doing all this? What's the point? You with me? Our teacher would say that the problem here is that we think we are peers with God. It is a category error. He is God, we are his creatures. He is in heaven, we are on earth. Which doesn't mean he is far off and distant, right? That's, that's an image that you get from medieval paintings. He's up in the clouds, 
chubby kids with the wings and the harps, and he's up there, and he's pointing his finger down like, touch me if you can. Like, that, that's not the image the Bible gives you of God. What it means when it says he is in heaven and we are on earth, it means heaven is where his throne is. He reigns. We're here. But this confusion isn't anything new. It goes all the way back. Because you see, the Bible tells the story that we were created in God's image. Humanity is created in God's image. To be in a dependent relationship with him and to realize his rule throughout the world. The way that you would call this in the ancient Near East, you call this, we were created to be vice regents, which just means like, he says, come reign with me. Come rule with me. Um, over, over this creation. Not, not to exploit it, but to see it flourish. Like we, that's what we were created for. But in time, we came to believe that this was not good enough. That God was holding us back. We weren't okay with being his image. We wanted to be his equal. And so we betrayed him. And that betrayal, the Bible calls sin. And, and I know that, that, that has a bunch of different connotations with it, right, for many of us in this room. What that means is that we are chasing our way instead of living in the dependence on God for everything that we were made for, okay? We want to choose our own morality. We want to choose our own view of reality, right? Modern philosophy is great with this, whether it's, whether it's Nietzsche or John Paul Sartre or, or Albert Camus. The, the entire thing is like, look, I get to choose what is reality. That goes all the way back to the garden. Whether it's, you know, those big names or your everyday relativist, right? I get to choose what's right and wrong for me. We even think, in some sense, that we can indebt God to us. So you see, our confusion of who exactly is in, is in charge here, who, how, the, how the terms of this arrangement actually work, isn't, isn't anything new. It began back in the garden, and it continues now, because you and I are in that same state. We're still there. Okay? We're all there. In biblical terms, we would say that we are in rebellion against God. And the kind of religious practices that are described right here is part of that rebellion. It's part of that rebellion. Think on that. The Bible says that outward religion that seeks to indebt God to us by doing things for him actually exacerbates the problem. It makes the problem worse. The problem is, is, is not that we're not doing enough religious things, that we're not clapping hard enough and saying, I do believe in Jesus, I do believe in Jesus. The problem is that we, are, we have turned from God to our own independence. And for many of us, that we have done that not in the way of, that we normally think in our heads that looks like a train wreck. We've done that in a way that looks like religion. And we use religion to get God to do what we want. Which means that we don't really want God in the first place. We want his stuff. We want something else that we think will fix us. And if, God, if serving God gets us that, great. If it doesn't, that's okay. I'll serve whatever it does. But the problem is we know it can't. Look down at verse 3. This is what the teacher is driving at when he talks about dreams and busyness in many words, okay? It's pointing to the restless nature that comes with religion. Remember that I said that we, that we look good on the outside, but inside we're angry and arrogant and terrified? We're angry because God doesn't seem to be doing what we think he should. We're arrogant because we think he should be happy with whatever we're willing to give him, and we are terrified because we never really know if what we've given is enough. Right? How do you know? How do you know you've had enough service? 
You've done enough good. You, you've, you've, uh, you've, you've worshipped him enough. You've sung enough songs. You've read the Bible enough. You've, you've cared for the poor enough. How do you know it's enough to make him like you? To overcome your faults. To give you what you hope he will. Listen, guys. Religion is a restless beast, and it is never satisfied. It is never satisfied. Which brings us to the inadequacies of it. Look down at verses 4 to 6 for a failure to act. Because, quite frankly, all the language in verses 4 to 6 sounds foreign to us, right? I mean, vows? I mean, we heard some this morning. But apart from weddings, I mean, which, which quite frankly, those vows today are pretty much a joke in most circles. Like, when do you make vows? <laughs> now, the reality is we do them all the time. They're, they're mainly unspoken. We make little promises to ourselves. I'm never going to do that again. I will never be in that position again. That person will never hurt me again. Like, we make vows all the time. We just don't ever say them. Uh, but, but in the Old Testament, uh, they were common as a part of worship, okay? And here's the way it would work. Someone would come to the temple, and they would say, as part of their worship, they would say, God, I'm, I, 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 am, I, am, I am promising, God, that if, if you do such and such, that I'm going to do so and so, okay? If you do this, I'm willing to give this or do this. In other words... We're still in the realm of worship here. We're still in the realm of religious service. Vows are still part of that. Okay? And, and the situation is envisioned, that's envisioned here is one that we can easily imagine, right? I promise God if he does such and such for me, I'm going to do so and so. And then he does such and such. He does whatever it is. And then, then we go, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure I was in a good place when I made that promise. I don't know if that, you know, it was a mistake. I know I said I'd do this, but it was a mistake. It wasn't such a good offer, okay? In other words, what is being addressed is not taking vows, it is fulfilling vows. The Bible is fine with taking vows, okay? For those of you who are interested, Deuteronomy 23.21 talks about it. Like, it, it gives you how to do this. And, and, the, and, the, and the, um, the Old Testament consistently is like, what they consistently say is, it is better to not make a vow than to make one and break it. Okay, and that says it in a bunch of places. Proverbs, Psalms, like it says it all over the place, right here. And the New Testament doesn't change that, right? I know some of us think that, but swearing, swearing that you're telling the truth is different from making a vow, okay? That's the whole yes, be yes thing. All right, it's not the same thing. But what is being talked about here is, is our penchant for not meeting our own standards. God, you do this, I'm going to do this. Look, no one compelled him to make that vow. He chose it. He chose it. He chose the vow. He made the bar. He set the bar. I'm going to do this. And then when the time comes, he's like, yeah, not so much. Like, I'm not, no, that, that, it's too high. Maybe I should have brought it down here, right? It, it's it's our, our penchant for not meeting our standards, which applies to all of us. Look, I mean, some of you self-identify as spiritual instead of religious, right? You have certain ideas about what makes you spiritual, right? Maybe, maybe you, um, you meditate or you, you have a spiritual way of looking at the world or maybe that just means for you that you're not very materialistic or you try not to be materialistic, right? You live in America. I hate to tell you, you're materialistic. Like, okay, this is, we all are. Um, you have certain things that you do, certain mindsets you keep. You know, those of us who pride ourselves on our devotion to God and look down on those, whether it's explicitly looking down on those or just internally looking down on them? All of us. What do you do when you fail your own standards? What do you do when you fail them? Because you do. I do. I know you do. 
What do you do when you don't keep up the image? Probably excuses, right? Which is what verse 6 talks about. You know, verse 6, he's talking about this. He says, don't say before the messenger that it was a mistake. And that's that's what he's saying here. Like, I I can't be expected to do that in such trying circumstances. What God really cares about is how nice I am normally. Right? God doesn't really care about those things anyway. Okay? Now listen, this just highlights the problem in us. We use religion. We use spirituality. We use whatever it is we worship to make us right, to try and fix what we know is wrong with us in the world. But the problem is, is that we can't even keep the very standards we set for ourselves. Like, if there's no way we can keep the standards God sets for us, we can't even keep the standards set for ourselves. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Romans. He's talking about those who... Who, who don't have the law, like don't have God's revelation, they, they, can't even, they can't even follow their own conscience. Like, we don't. None of us do. Which means that reforming isn't going to work. Reforming us can't even deal with our behaviors. Better yet, deal with what's going on inside of us. And that leads us to verse 7 in projecting an image. Look there. He says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Okay? Look, let's be honest. At the end of the day, listen to me, at the end of the day, religion, the outward action of piety without an inward motivation or reality, it's not for God. It's for everybody else. At the end of the day, it's for everybody else. And that is what our teacher is saying. Saying God is the one you should fear. Which doesn't mean um, be scared of. It means uh, be in awe of. In other words, he should be the one who's big, not the people around you. What the teacher is saying is you can fill the the air with your words, with your right doctrine, with your good ideas about God, but he is not impressed. And look, the New Testament says this too in the book of James, when when, um, James, who is um, one of of the early church's leaders, he, he says... Look, you believe that there's one God, which, which in, a, you know, in a first century Jewish new Christian mindset, that is like the orthodox affirmation, right? As opposed to the rest of the world that believed in the pantheon, you believe there's one God. You have good theology. Great. So do demons. And they shudder when they, when they think about it. You've got the right ideas. Good. Good for you. Look, you can have all the congratulations of everyone in this room for your service to the church, for your good theology, for your care for the poor, for your spirituality, whatever that means. But frankly, it means diddly in the end. It means diddly. Whether I think you're a good guy or whether or not you think you're a good guy, in the end it doesn't matter, right? In, uh, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, Paul talks about this. He says, like, look, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm, I'm innocent. God's the one who judges me. Like, look, I think I'm a pretty good guy, but so what? You, don't think, you may not think I'm a good guy. It doesn't matter either. Like, the point is, the teacher is saying here in Ecclesiastes that it is meaningless. Why? Why is religion meaningless? Because it cannot deal with the problem. Religion is just another way of saying, I can fix this problem myself. If I do enough of this, if I, if I care enough for these people, if I live for others instead of myself, I can fix my problem. But you can't. I can't. We can't. 
You and I do not need reforming. We need recreating. We don't need to be reformed. We need to be reborn. It doesn't matter what I think of you at the end of the day. It matters where you are with God. And so long as you are independent of Him, so long as you are seeking to be right apart from Him, like verse 2 says, we don't even realize that what we're doing is evil. It is offensive to Him. I wish I could say something else to you. I wish I could tell you that all of your religious fervor is giving you trophies and God's like, yeah! It's not. It's not. But thankfully, God has not left us there. Let me give you an alternative to this. Because you see, the meaninglessness of our attempts at religion are exposed and redeemed by the very God we've betrayed. Even when we had betrayed God, alienated ourselves from Him in the garden, even when we were under guilt for our betrayal and had replaced His rule in our hearts and said, I don't, you don't, uh, I don't need you anymore. I can do this just fine. Thank you very much. God promised to make things right. And then he chose a dude named Abraham. And he said that it was through his family that he would rescue us from this. That he would make things right with, with him. He would rescue us from the consequences of our rebellion. And he gave to Abraham's family an image of what it would look like to be the humanity that God had made us to be. It's called the law. Okay? But they couldn't keep it. They couldn't keep it. Why? Because they're no different than us. They're just as broken as the rest of us are. They couldn't keep it. And so in the fullness of time, God took on flesh in Jesus and fulfilled that vision of humanity, which means that he was perfectly faithful to God. Not just externally, internally. It's a, he loved God with all of his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength. But then out of love for us, he willingly bore the weight of our betrayal. He bore the judgment that we were due on the cross. You see what I'm talking about here? What we turned away from was a dependent relationship with God. We seek after religion to independently make things right with God, but you cannot fix independence independently. <laughs> and so God came and rescued us so that we could return to dependence. But friends, you have to return to dependence. That is why Christians always talk about faith. Okay? Faith and repentance are kind of uh, churchy words that literally mean turning away from putting our hope in what we can do, whether that is religion or spirituality or just community service, and placing our hopes only in what he did for us. Listen to me. Listen to me really close. You cannot get back to God with enough religion, with enough spirituality, with enough service. I do not doubt, if you're, in the, if you're right now and you're like, Rick, you do not get how hard I am working. I get that you're running hard. I get it. But you're running hard in the wrong direction. If God is this way, but you're running hard this way, it doesn't matter how fast you're going, you're going to get nowhere. You're just going to get there faster than the rest of us. Okay? And Jesus literally said in John's Gospel that he is the way to return the Father. Not a way, not the best way. He is the way. Why? Because it is through Him that God has said, you can return to being dependent. Because I will provide everything for you in Him. Just cling to Him. You have to turn. Turn from this direction and lay it, lay, lay all of it down and place your faith in Christ. Now listen, don't shut me off. <laughs> Don't shut me off, because some of you think that you've done that, but you haven't. You haven't. 
if you constantly find yourself angry at God for not delivering on what you think you deserve, constantly think to yourself that you have done everything and he just never shows up, and you are terrified that it isn't enough, I would be willing to bet that your faith is not in Jesus Christ. It is in Christianity. And Christianity will not save you. Christianity will not reconcile you to God. Jesus Christ will. Jesus Christ will. Placing your faith in Christ means opening your hands. It means admitting that you aren't nearly as good as you think you are. And hoping, uh, nearly as good as even you're hoping that you are. Okay? And coming to the end of yourself so that you can come to the fullness of Him. It means realizing that it isn't God's stuff. It isn't the Father's stuff that will make you right. It is God Himself. It is God Himself. It must be all of Him. It must be all of Jesus. His is the only righteousness, the only faithfulness we can ever hope in. Not ours. Not ours. Now, some of us are thinking right now, so religious things are bad, huh? Now, if it's all by faith, do I then just kind of do this and then sit on the couch? <laughs> right? No. Look, this passage says, this passage tells us, sacrifice isn't bad, it's the sacrifice of fools that is bad. Vows are not bad, it is vowing and not fulfilling them that is bad, okay? The difference is motivation. Because when you place your faith in Christ suddenly religion can be filled with meaning. The Protestant reformers, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Earl Zwingli, they they were apt to say that it is faith alone that justifies. And it justifies, um, it's a Christianese word. Uh, It means to be made right with God. Faith alone makes you right with God, but the faith that makes you right is never alone. It is faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That is because when you have been both fully known, listen to me, fully known. I want you to think about that for a minute. You know your junk, right? I know my junk. I got trunk loads of it. You have been fully known in all of your junk and fully loved. Nobody knows it all. Nobody knows all your junk. You don't even know all your junk. You think you do. You got blind spots. You got stuff back here. Nobody's ever, well, let me put it this way. Everybody else sees those. You, just, you don't. But like, we, but God has seen it all because he made you. You have fully known and fully loved. When you've been known in all of your failures, even your secret ones, and forgiven fully, There is no response to give except to give everything to that one who is willing to love you in the midst of all of your garbage and forgive you in the midst of every one of your failures. You see, Christians serve God, share the gospel with others, care for the helpless, speak for the voiceless. We give our money away, not to get God's favor, but because in Christ, he's given it to us. And if we have the favor of God through Christ, there is nothing that my money or my time or, or anything can give to me anymore. And so I can give it away. Let me be straight up here. The God of religion or of spirituality, 
He is a harsh taskmaster. He asks for much and loves little because he gives little. The God of Christianity, as he is revealed both in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ, is a God who seeks us, who loves us, who gives himself in our place and offers us a place in his family. We who were rebels, not pretty nice people, rebels before God, who hated him. And if you're like, I don't remember ever not hating him, like, or ever hating him, like, trust me, the Bible says you, you did, you may just not realize you did. I remember it. I remember raging at the dude. For hours. Raging. And he offers us a place in his family. Those of us who still turn from him every day. He gives us everything in Christ. Friends, we are all religious. It is just a question of which God we serve. Ultimately, though, it is a question of whether we place our faith in ourselves or in Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, it seems strange to, to me, <laughs> to, I think to all of us, uh, for, uh, for someone to get up and start preaching against religion at a religious worship service. But Lord, the reality is is that you're not asking for our service. You're asking for us. And we are so eager to offer you um, our service. We are so so eager to let you use us so that we can get what we want. But you want us. You will not rest until we are yours. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the way you did it in my life, the way you've done it through others here. I pray for everyone in this room. That today we would give up on our religion and turn to Christ, whether that is for the first time or whether it's for the one millionth time. Every one of us is in need of his gospel, of his life, death, and resurrection, and in growing in our faith in that and our repentance from other things. So, Lord, I pray that you would drive us there. I pray that you would do that for the sake of your name, for the ways in which you have glorified yourself and continue to. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you stand with me, please, you'll find printed in your bulletins our confession of faith. And this morning we use our confession of faith using the Heidelberg Catechism question number 32. And it asks a great question. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ alone, what are we then called and why are we called as Christians? And so I ask you now uh, to confess our faith together. And the question is this, but why are you called a Christian? Because by faith, I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. You may be seated. Listen, as we begin to prepare our hearts to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, to come as a family and celebrate our union with Christ, we first come realizing that we're broken people. I'm broken. My kids are broken. Uh, we're, we're, we're broken, right? And so we struggle with sin. And Scripture calls us to confess not only to God, but to one another our, our sins. And we do this not because God wants us to 
feel, you know, wants us to feel guilty or somehow confessing our sin will appease our consciences. We, we confess our sins simply to stop pretending that we don't struggle with them and to return to the only one who can do something about our sin, the one that we were made for in the first place. And so this week we're going to have a silent time of confession where you go before the Lord silently and confess your sins to him. And to frame that time, I want you to hear from the book of Isaiah. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon.